Well, good morning. As you've noticed, neither Father Ron or Father Don or Father Carter are with us. I'm not sure what I said or what I've done. <laughs> I feel a little bit like Macaulay Culkin's character from Home Alone. <laughs> In fact, Brent, what you should do is you should tell Father Ron when he gets here, I don't know what Larry was saying. I've never heard that liturgy before. I'm pretty sure he was making it up as he went. I haven't heard him say yada, yada, yada once. Uh, of course, Father Ron, Susie, and, and John Carl, and, and uh, Joy are all in, I think, Pennsylvania. They're conducting a wedding there. And then Father Don is with his mother, I think 97 years old, in Tennessee. And Father Carter and his family are with their family. I think they're either today in Jacksonville or Palm Coast. I'm not sure which. Uh, it's so good to have Pepe and Miriam here with us today. The Lord is at work. Well, did everyone have a, an enjoyable Christmas? Good. Wonderful. It wasn't cold. I always enjoy... I, 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 uh, I like it to be overcast and cold on Christmas. I know it won't snow, but it looks as if it could. Someone asked me before the service, Anglicans, do Anglicans say Happy New Year? We say it like Yoda from Star Wars. Happy Year New. And that's it. No, we say Happy New Year. January 1st, we celebrate the circumcision of the Lord on that day, but we... we uh, we say Happy New Year. So, Happy New Year to you all. Um, let's begin this morning, please, by opening to Matthew, the 11th chapter. A verse many of us have heard, probably, from the time we were small children. Matthew, the 11th chapter. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit and pray that today he would be at work in our hearts and minds, causing your word to come alive, revealing to us the living Jesus Christ within I pray that Jesus leaps from the pages of this book into our lives, into this moment today, that we might encounter you. In his name we pray, amen. I was reading uh, that verse from the uh, New American Standard Bible. I'd like to read it to you from the Message Bible. Or is anyone familiar with the Message Bible? It's a transliteration which was uh, written... I think either entirely by or largely by Eugene Peterson. I want to read that same verse from uh, that transliteration. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. That's a lovely promise, isn't it? You know, for a number of years, I did uh, consulting work uh, with churches, assisting them in transitioning from high, hierarchical um, uh, models to team-based uh, governing models. 
and uh, in lay leadership development and leadership development, as well as um, uh, growth initiatives. And I had a, a unique exercise that I would walk them through. For the first several days in meeting with the leadership teams, uh, I would uh, have the churches articulate their mission, their values, and their beliefs. Then we would begin dissecting the data that they would provide and their history. And what would emerge uh, from the picture of all of that and the choices which they made was a set of beliefs often um, at real variance with their stated values and beliefs and discovered that their mission had grown rather fuzzy. And there are a whole host of reasons for that, but one of the most significant I discovered uh, was that there was an unwillingness to liberate uh, power or authority and distribute that, which a team-based approach to ministry would require. And uh, there was reluctance until I uh, suggested to them that power is not really what they had to let go of which caught them a bit off guard. I reminded them that power, ultimately, is the ability to influence outcomes. And given that they were largely unable to accomplish the outcomes that they had outlined years before, they weren't hitting their goals, uh, I suggested to them that what uh, they had was not power, but control. And control is a poor substitute for power. I discovered this is not only true in in certain churches, uh, but it's true in our lives. Those churches uh, suffered misalignment with their mission, with their values, and with their beliefs, but that frequently occurs in our own lives, regularly. Um, We have a set of values and beliefs which we aspire to, But I think if we were to analyze the regular decisions of our life, the daily choices we make, the manner in which we execute our life, we might well discover also a significant difference between what we aspire to believe and value and what we actually value and believe. We might also discover that our mission has become a bit ambiguous, a bit fuzzy. Why is that, I wonder? I don't think it is an effect of hypocrisy or a double standard. I think, rather, it's a consequence of the absence of awareness and intentionality. I want you to turn with me, please, to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. We're going to read a number of scriptures today. I don't want to lose you as we do that. Um, So please follow me. Ephesians, chapter 5. A failure to integrate intentionally the beliefs we aspire to into our choices. A failure to remain aware of our missional aims as believers and as individuals uh, can find us deeply frustrated. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, presents a more integrated approach to life. Ephesians 5, let's begin with. Verse 13, I'll join you there in just a moment. (laughs) 
But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So there is a suggestion here that uh, in the same fashion that alcohol, which we imbibe into excess, can lead to drunkenness, and so we surrender our control over to, to the influence of, of uh, drunkenness, the suggestion is that we can also surrender our lives to the influence of the Holy Spirit and be led and controlled by Him. If someone uh, drinks too much and they find themselves behind a wheel and then are subsequently pulled over by a police officer, they're going to be charged with uh, a DUI, driving under the influence. Well, I want to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure you do as well. But how do we do that on a practical level? Because I'm sure we all start out our days wishing very much to please God. To walk in a manner that embraces His reality moment by moment throughout the day so that it's guiding us in our personal choices and our interactions with others and the way we respond to the world around us. But how many of you have discovered that it's easier said than done? Yeah, is there a way, though, to do this that finds us healthier, that finds us enjoying friendships that last and grow richer and more meaningful and more life-giving as time passes? Let's look at uh, Colossians 3. Um, Paul actually continues this thought in his letter uh, uh, to the Colossians. Uh, let's uh, go to chapter 3. Now, we're going to do... Quite a bit of reading. Again, stay with me, please. Sometimes we read these verses of Scripture and they, they become disconnected. There, there is a stream of, of thought that I, I want you to catch on here. Colossians 3, verse 1, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, Paul is tethering some abstract spiritual concepts to concrete action to something which we can do intentionally to connect these spiritual ideas and the life and power they contain to our daily lives. Verse 6, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. 
and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, verse 12, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now he's suggesting, once again, an ordered and integrated life. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Now he is conveying these same spiritual concepts into our relationships. Wives, serve the better interests of your husbands. Husbands, serve the better interests of your wives. Submit one to another and together submit to the will of Christ. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Children, serve the better interests of your parents. Parents, serve the better interests of your children. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Let's skip ahead to verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Employers, serve the better interests of your employees. Employees, serve the better interests of your employers. Verse 2, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Now that is an interesting approach to life. It is a life lived, a deep awareness of God's abiding presence and of the centrality of God and others to our lives. His mission and his priorities remain foremost in our thinking. Now, Micah sums this up eloquently and succinctly in, in uh, chapter 6, the book of Micah. This should sound familiar. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? To do what? Justice. To love mercy. 
and to walk humbly with your God. That's a wonderfully integrated, holistic approach to life. And I think we find how it might be possible if we simply invert that. We begin with walking humbly with our God. God yearns for fellowship with you. That really really blows the Bible here, doesn't it? Um, We were created for fellowship with him. We find in the first book, the book of Genesis, that God walked. It was his practice to walk with man each day in the garden. In the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelations, we read in Revelations 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will answer, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. God yearns for communion with us. That is the purpose of our lives. Communion with him. We don't have to engage in some spiritual odyssey, traveling around the world, uh, enduring all sorts of hardships in order to know God. He's not merely cut the distance in half. He's on our doorstep. Humbly, the creator of heaven and earth is humbly standing at the door of our hearts, knocking. May I come in? He could just kick the door in or part the the ceiling and say, I'm God and you're not, let me in. But he doesn't. He will not violate our autonomy as humans. It would utterly destroy the unique purpose of, of man if that were to occur. So he stands humbly waiting. What a joy, though, to walk with him. A joy to walk with Jesus moment by moment, day by day. He's suggesting, first of all, that we walk with God. Now, most of us have devotional lives. Unfortunately, because of the way we lead our lives, particularly here in the West, we tend to segregate these uh, parts of our lives. We have our devotional life. We have our family life, our personal life. We have our work life. And often we have our church life. And, and so we lead these sort of compartmentalized lives. Now, compartmentalization, once upon a time, was not considered a virtue. In the last 20 or 30 years, it sort of uh, enjoyed some vaunted status suddenly. Uh, but more and more are, are, I think, returning to the idea that this is not an entirely healthy approach to life. Uh, we, we are busy people, aren't we? Even when we don't need to be. Watch a family dining together in a restaurant. They're not generally enjoying one another's company. They're staring into a screen. But they will converse with each other. What? Hang on, I'm reading something important. And we engage socially, but we often do it through social media, Facebook. I've seen engagement on Facebook. (laughs) Let's see, let me find a stranger that I can yell at on Facebook (laughs) and disagree with. Twitter, now I have a Twitter uh, account. I select people... They're mainly thinkers and commentators whose opinions I value and some I don't value, but I want to hear what they're saying. Theologians, uh, ministers, and comedians. (laughs) And I enjoy that, but I don't read the comments 
following their tweets. It's pure poison. I am just shocked at, uh, at how that can happen. I had a Facebook account years ago and lots of, lots of uh, friends. And uh, there came a point in time during this, uh, actually during the last election, when I shut down my Facebook account. It wasn't just because I was tired of the toxicity that I saw displayed there every day, but I was reading a post of mine once, and I thought, Larry, when did you become such a jackass? <laughs> that is horrible. And I realized the poison had crept in. I shut it down. And a few years later, a couple of years later, I started it up again. My children share all kinds of photos and that. And so I have a limited uh, set of friends. I guess I always have. <laughs> Not that popular, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, but when I uh, came on board here, more and more people from the church uh, wanted to become Facebook friends. And so I reluctantly say yes, and I'm... Uh, just carefully monitoring all of that. Uh, but that is not a relationship. We have more ability to, or, uh, we, we have now the ability to connect with more people than ever before, and yet loneliness is epidemic in our society. Suicide is on the rise. We're not actually socializing, we're not building relationships. And unfortunately, some of the, um, some of the, the same uh, tactics and um, some of the ethos of Facebook and Twitter is entering into personal relationships now. And uh, people are allowing themselves to be defined in ways that just naturally create division. Uh, there is a gentleman I've known for many years. He's an artist. And uh, we've always gotten along famously and really enjoyed chatting with one another. And I happened into the art gallery a couple of years ago, and uh, in this heightened political environment, he, he asked me a question, and I answered it honestly, but I, I, not offensively. I just said, well, you know, we, we, have, a we have a disagreement, obviously, in, in, in this arena, but that's fine. And then we were talking about a piece of information I needed, and I, I said, well, just give me your email address. He goes, I don't know if I want to give you my email address. I said, Steve, why? Well, you, if you believe this, I'm just not sure I, 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 I trust you with my email address. I said, Steve, you're being absurd. You've known me for almost 20 years. I'm not a terrorist. I don't have a problem giving you my email address, even though we clearly don't see eye to eye on this issue. But there are many issues which we do agree on. Please rethink that. And he did, standing in front of me, said, wow, I'm sorry. A bit of madness. And we exchange email addresses. And we see each other quite regularly, almost monthly now at the gallery. And we have a marvelous time again. But that's the time in which we live. And that's the tone uh, uh, of so many of our interactions with people today. And that is not healthy. It is not biblical. And it does not contribute to the life that God wants us to enjoy. Um. We want to walk humbly with God. We want to love mercy. Both, both of these terms in walking humbly with God and loving mercy, they're covenantal terms. It's speaking of love relationships, binding love relationships with God 
and with others. And finally, we're called to do justice, to do the right thing out in the world in which we're living. Well, again, how do we do that? We tend now to lead these compartmentalized lives, which uh, are, not, are not healthy. What is God calling us to here? He's calling us to walk with him. He's calling us to walk with him while we're walking with others. And he's calling us to walk with him as we make our way in a uh, lost world. We are walking with him 24-7. We are communing with him day and night. We are to pray always. How do you pray always? It doesn't even seem practical, does it? How can I maintain bended knee throughout the day? I can't close my eyes while I'm driving. Not all the time, but... Um, it, it seems impractical. How can, I, how can I conduct conversations with others if I am praying with God? Prayer is a running dialogue with God. It is a conversation, a two-way conversation we're maintaining with God from the time our eyes open until we lay our head to rest that night on our pillows. We are talking to God. We are listening for God. We're talking to God about what we're experiencing throughout the day. We are talking to God with others as we encounter them through the day. The first reaction when you encounter a need, if you're living and walking that way, is let's pray about this. Isn't that a great way to respond with friends when there's a need? Hey, let's pray about this. Not as a PR tool. I really dreaded that when I first entered the pastorate. People expected you to pray. And I just finally made a rule. I'm not going to pray unless people want to pray. I'm not going to use it as a public relations tool. But, but it really ought to be our response when we are together with God's people to any need or any desire is to pray and, and to seek the Lord. And, and then when we are walking with God in the world we can respond to it like Jesus did. Acts 10.38, we read how God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about in the world doing good and healing all who were sick and oppressed of the devil. Have you ever stopped and asked somebody that's not a Christian, would you like prayer? Very few people will turn you down. Well, you know, you just talk with someone, or you bump into someone at, at work or maybe in a grocery store and you start chatting with them and often people will just articulate something that they're dealing with. And that's a great opportunity to pray. Now, since becoming a priest, I was a pastor for 18 years and wore a suit and tie, but uh, since I've adopted a dog collar, when I walk into, uh, sometimes I'll stop in at Publix on the way home and... Uh, uh, it's funny seeing the faces of people when they round an aisle and see me there. It, older people tend to smile and hi. Uh, some young people look at it and it, you can see them wanting to scoot away quickly. And then there are a few people that look on it and you're thinking, I should have security with me. <laughs> um, it's conjured up some images. It's not pleasant for them apparently. But... What I have found is it's rather like walking around with an open for business sign on. And so people will stop and ask me, I've had, will you pray with me? One woman asked in the middle of public, will you bless me? Sure. Right here among the artichokes and bananas. 
Um, but people uh, react that way because it's obvious I'm either a priest or uh, an actor portraying a priest or maybe someone slightly mentally unstable who's parading about as a minister. Um, but if people are aware of our nearness to God, because the manner in which we are living our life somehow reflects Him, I think more and more people you encounter in the world, with or without a collar on to, to um, designate your status as a believer, people will ask you to pray with them, or they will certainly allow you to pray with them. This is a life in which our devotional life is our life. It's not 15 or 20 or 30 minutes in the morning. I enjoy the um, daily office. How many of here, you do the daily office here? How many of you do not do the daily <laughs> office? Are you, how many of you know what I'm referring to when I say the daily office? Okay, in all seriousness, how many of you have no idea what I'm talking about the daily? You say, well, I, yeah, I go to my office every day. Okay, well, that's interesting. That's, uh, that's not for this uh, morning to discuss, but the daily office is really, it's prayers and, and the reading of Scripture uh, for morning, noon, and night, or vespers, or evensong, or it's, it's evening prayers. And it is a wonderful uh, tool for drawing our focus and attention to Jesus Christ. Um, but we'll talk about that at another time. Um, but there is a tendency among Christians to have a devotional life and then we walk away from it. And I'll see you tomorrow morning again, God. But we can carry this uh, devotional aspect of our lives into the whole of our lives. And I think that allows us, as a, again, we're not only walking with God, we're walking with God as we walk with others. We're walking with God as we walk among others. What happens as this compartmentalization, this segmentation of our life begins to bleed away? we discover suddenly that we are present when we're in the company of those we love and enjoy. Lots of people are merely here, but they're not actually present. In fact, some of you this morning may be, may be here, but not present. You may be skiing in Vermont. You may be thinking about tucking into a meal at your favorite restaurant after dinner. You may be thinking, when's this guy going to shut up? And then some of you are present, listening to that one or two of you I'm talking this morning. No. Um, this happens in our family lives all the time. We call it being emotionally available. We may be present, but we're not really there. And this is an effect of such deeply compartmentalized lives, I think. Uh, and, and we're being called into, I think, a more organic approach to life, one, that, uh, one in which uh, it, it, uh, it certainly adapts, but it allows us, uh, I think, it prefers to allow life to adapt to us, our relationships to adapt to the presence of Christ with us. Um, Matthew, the sixth chapter, let's turn there, please. It means we begin living our lives within the context of eternity. It fuels grace-empowered transformation, and it helps to end behaviors which sabotage and undermine friendships. And that is a real need 
in life, and it is a desperate need in the church, friends. And people today have fewer and fewer friendships. It's startling. It is at epidemic proportions in our culture, and it's leading to all sorts of unhealthy social pathologies, and it has real health consequences as well. How many of you here are familiar with the uh, Rosetta effect? Okay. That is a, there was a small, there is a small town. It's much has changed uh, since they noted this and, and titled it the, the Rosetta effect. A small town in Pennsylvania, the doctors began conducting a study in, very small, uh, in Rosetta, Pennsylvania. And it was settled by immigrants from Italy from Rosetta, Italy, and they simply transferred the name of that town to that region, and they, they actually settled the town. And they comprised the bulk of its population for decades. And these doctors discovered at a time when heart disease, especially among men, I think after the age of 55, was rampant, they discovered almost no occurrence of heart disease. And, and these people were living... 90, 100 years old, and uh, they thought, well, we need to discover the secret behind this. Well, after years of study, they discovered it wasn't diet. They assumed, well, perhaps they've, they've uh, transported the Mediterranean diet here. They hadn't. They were eating a lot of the same fatty foods um, uh, that most of the other um, neighboring men in the other neighboring cities were eating, and most of America was eating. They smoked cigars constantly. Uh, they determined it wasn't genetic. There were other people that came from that region of Italy and had settled in other parts of the country and they were suffering the same ill effects of uh, diet and stress that other Americans were. They determined it was, uh, in fact, none of those things. I'm going to read to you briefly. Are you familiar with Malcolm Gladwell? Written a number of bestsellers. This is Outliers. And it had an interesting story in it about this uh, town, Rosetta. I want to read a bit to you from it. If diet and exercise didn't explain the findings, then what about genetics? The Rosetans were a close-knit group from the same region of Italy. And Wolf's Wolf is the doctor, one of the doctors studying this. Next thought was to wonder whether they were of a particularly hardy stock that protected them from disease. So he tracked down the relatives of the Rosetans who were living in other parts of the United States to see if they shared in the same remarkable good health as their cousins in Pennsylvania. They didn't. He then looked at the region where the Ro Rosetans lived. Was it possible that there was something about living in the foothills of eastern Pennsylvania that was good for their health? The two closest towns to Rosetta were Bangor, which was just down the hill, and Nazareth, a few miles away. These were both about the same size as Rosetto, and both were populated with the same kind of hardworking European immigrants. Wolf combed through both towns' medical records. For men over 65, the death rates from heart disease in Nazareth and Bangor were three times out of Rosetto, another dead end. What Wolf began to realize was that the secret of Rosetta wasn't diet or exercise or genes or location. It had to be Rosetta itself, as Bruin, another doctor working on this um, with Wolf, walked around the town, they figured out why. They looked at how the Rosettans visited one another, stopping to chat in Italian. We'll all have to learn Italian, apparently, on the street, or cooking for one another in their backyards. They learned about the extended family clans that underlay the town's social structure. They saw how many homes had three generations living 
under one roof, and that was common. Our first pastorate was in Boston, and among the Italian-Americans, they lived in triple-deckers, and a generation before we had arrived, often families lived together in those triple-deckers. They looked at how the Rosatans visited one another. I've read that, haven't I? They learned about the extended family clans that underlay the town's social structure. They saw how many homes had three generations living under one roof and how much respect grandparents commanded. They went to Mass at Our Lady of Mount Carmel and saw the unifying and calming effect of the church. They counted 22 separate civic organizations in a town of just under 2,000 people. They picked up on the particular egalitarian ethos of the community, which discouraged the wealthy from flaunting their success and help the unsuccessful obscure their failures. In transplanting the culture of southern Italy to the hills of eastern Pennsylvania, the Rosatans, or I suppose that's how you say that, had created a powerful, protective social structure capable of insulating them from the pressures of the modern world. That's a fabulous story, isn't it? What, what, uh, what was their secret? Nobody was doing life alone. They were all doing life together. They had formed a community, and they cultivated rich friendships. They protected those friendships, and those friendships ended up protecting them. That really is the life we are called to as believers. We are called to abide within community. But I don't believe it's possible to enjoy healthy community, even within the church, absent the grace of God. The Christian life isn't just Im, uh, uh, difficult, it's impossible, I think Father Ron has said. Absent the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. But it is possible. I'm suggesting that as we approach the new year, we make a decision to lead a simpler life. You mean throw things out and that sort of thing? No. No, begin to focus on the things which are truly important. Shalom, it's a word for peace, a Hebrew word for peace. It's an interesting word because it suggests wholeness, and it is that wholeness which in effect breeds peace. Uh, the whole of one's life reflecting the presence and peace of God compartmentalization as a tactic for coping with cognitive dissonance is no longer necessary. How many of you, I'm going to ask you again as I did at the beginning of the service, how many of you are sometimes frustrated by the, by the uh, not just frustrated, hold on. <laughs> you may be frustrated by the length of the sermon. I don't want to hear about that right now. Um, you're frustrated by the disparity that can sometimes exist between what you aspire to value and believe and what you're actually living out. Yeah. I mean, it's as common as mud. But there's a way around that. There's a way to beat that phenomenon. We walk humbly with God. We love mercy you know what mercy is? You know what mercy is really born of? The realization that you too are a mess. The realization that you need mercy finds you liberally offering mercy to others. And if there's one thing friendships need in order to endure, it's mercy, isn't it?
and to do, to do justly, live in a way that allows us to touch the world around us. We're going to walk with God. We're going to walk with God while we walk with one another. And we're going to walk with God as we walk, make our way into the world around us. As we close, let's turn to John, the 15th chapter, please. These simple acts, there's an expanding symmetry and repeating patterns that begin to emerge in our lives as we engage in these simple behaviors. And they make all the difference over time. John, the 15th chapter... <clears throat> Beginning with verse 1, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So we're seeking first the kingdom. You remember this encouragement from Matthew, the sixth chapter. We're seeking first the kingdom. That becomes our missional priority. We are praying always. We're enjoying communion with God and with His people. We're continuing in His Word and we're loving one another. Or said simply, we're feeding upon Him through the Word and the sacrament. We are fellowshipping with God and with His people and we are following Christ into the world. Now, <clears throat> Jesus really says essentially the same thing succinctly. We read it every Sunday morning during the liturgy. We call it the summary of the law. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. This is found in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Life on this level is rich. It's filled with God's presence and joy. And it's easy. We are designed with the capacity to walk this out. And when we do, it will be reflected in the whole of our lives. And I think a wonderful sense of peace, shalom, uh, will, will become our lot when we're alone with God, when we're together with others with God and when we're making our way out in the world with God present there. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've given us. I pray that he would work in this word to give us understanding. 
and to give us grace, Lord, to begin to uh, walk it out and to experience you, Lord Jesus, more fully, more deeply, and more intimately. In your name we pray, amen.